it's a blessing because we're going through the Ten Commandments, and we are on the Seventh Commandment. And most of what we do on youth is, it's very conversational. It's not going to be quite as conversational tonight because it's easier to facilitate when you're in a small room. But as we've walked through the Ten Commandments, we've gotten now to the Seventh Commandment. And if you know what the Seventh Commandment is, it is, thou shalt not commit adultery. And so I've been wondering all week, how am I going to teach that to everybody who's not married? So it's good that you're here. Uh, So there's some people who know what... I'll tell you, one of the main reasons I'm glad is that I would like for there to be someone who can answer questions, so you can ask your parents at home instead of me if you have any questions about what comes up in this topic. I'll admit off the top as well that um, you can't talk about adultery without talking about sex and sexuality, and I'll just be completely frank that that, I'm not always very comfortable talking about that. It's, um, it's a topic that seems uncomfortable to, to talk about. But I, uh, I was chastised in my studies by a guy named Al Mohler, and I'll read to you what he said. He said, Christians have no right to be embarrassed when it comes to talking about sex and sexuality. He says, an unhealthy reticence or embarrassment in dealing with these issues is a form of disrespect to God's creation. He said, whatever God made is good, and every good thing that God has made has an intended purpose that ultimately reveals his own glory. He said, when conservative Christians respond to sex with ambivalence or embarrassment, we slander the goodness of God and we hide God's glory, which is intended to be revealed in the right use of creation's gifts. In other words, what he's saying is that my embarrassment has more to do with my lack of faithfulness than God's failure in his design. In fact, God designed something beautiful and awesome in marriage and in sex. And the fact that our culture has distorted that and left it something that is embarrassing is a shame on us, not a shame on God. Um, What I'm going to try to do is answer three big questions. Three big questions, and then we'll, we'll... be done. The, the big three is what would it look like if we kept the seventh commandment? If none of us were guilty of committing adultery, what would that look like for us? The second is if we have committed adultery, is that a big deal? In our day and time, is it really that big of a deal if you break the law, if you break the seventh commandment? And then the third question we want to talk about is what if I have, right? What if I have broke the seventh commandment? What if I've committed adultery? What next? What do I do about it? So we'll walk through three questions in, those, in that order. Let me start just by praying that God will open our minds. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word that covers every aspect of our lives, even the most private aspects of our lives, and says, as Joel said the other night, that there's not a single square inch of this world that you do not say, that's mine. And so we ask tonight, as we consider the topic of adultery and sexuality, and we ask, how can we respond in this area in a way that worships you and glorifies you? Uh, Open our hearts and open our minds. Give us wisdom to, uh, to approach this topic. In your name I pray, amen. All right, my first big point is, what does it mean 
What would it look like if we were to keep the seventh commandment? And my first big point I want to try to get across is that it's more than just not cheating on your spouse, right? A lot of times if you say, well, what is adultery? That means I'm a married person and I've been unfaithful to my spouse. And I think the Bible is going to show us it's much, much more than that, right? In fact, there's several of us in here tonight. In fact, I think every one of us in here tonight could say, even if you have never cheated on your spouse in the world's view, that you are still guilty of breaking the seventh commandment because God says it goes way deeper than your actions. It goes all the way to your heart. One of the ways I know this, or at least one of the reasons I believe this, is because I believe that the Ten Commandments aren't just a list of ten rules. There's a, a few scholars that have helped me realize this. One of them's name is Walter Kaiser, and I had made this PowerPoint I was going to show tonight, but it, I just forgot to turn it in on time. So I'm just going to kind of walk through his idea. But what he pointed out is that in Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter gives us 10 commandments, 10 rules. But then after that, starting in the 12th chapter through almost the end of Deuteronomy, all the laws of God are organized in a way that almost matches perfectly with the 10 commandments. The first starting in chapter 12, that first chapter deals with everything regarding loving the Lord your God, not having any idols or any graven images, right? And 13 and 14 deal with what is, how do we use God's name, right? And then it goes so on and so on, and there'll be two or three chapters per law that say, if you want to keep this commandment, this is what's in view. This is what you have to do. What it suggests is that the Ten Commandments aren't just ten rules. They're summaries of big ideas. And when you get to the Seventh Commandment, we can actually look at what does it mean to keep the Seventh Commandment by looking at Deuteronomy chapter 22 and chapter 23. I'm not going to read them tonight. and I'm not going to read them for two reasons. One is it's long, but two is because it's kind of explicit, right? Those are the chapters that when I was a kid that I would read and snicker at and think, I can't believe this is in the Bible kind of chapters. It's explicit stuff. But I'm going to kind of go over a summary. What does it mean, according to chapters 22 and 23, to not commit adultery? The chapters can be broken down, depending on which translation, into about seven paragraphs. And I'll, I'll just summarize those. The first paragraph gives us a list of things that we wouldn't expect to be related to adultery. Right? It's, there, it's a, he describes it as a transitional paragraph that moves from the command of not murder to not a, a committing adultery. But he says things like, don't yoke an ox and a donkey when you're plowing your field. You think, what does that have to do with adultery? Or then he says, don't have a cloth made out of two different types of fabric, all one type of fabric. You know, that's, this is his explanation of, a, of adultery, and you're trying to figure out what's going on, but it seems like what's, what he's saying is God created certain things to go together, and it needs to be done in the right way, in the right time, and I, it's not right to separate what God has put together. And you start trying to work that out, and, and, and what it really seems like he's saying is when God created marriage, he said, I created a man and a woman to go together. And they're not supposed to go in another way. And he, says, and he says, that's not just marriage, though. He says, the entire world is made up of species of their own kinds. 
right? And what he's saying is, I've designed this world in a way that makes sense when it's done the way I've designed it. And I'm asking you to operate in the world according to my design. He goes on, there's another one that is really surprising. The next one, he says, also, I want you to make for yourselves this robe, and it has four tassels on it, and these tassels will remind you that I brought you out of Egypt, and that I'm faithful to my promise, and I want you to be holy. And again, you're thinking, what does this have to do with adultery? But it seems that what he's saying is that every part of my commandment, of my laws, even regarding sexual sins, have to do with you being a people that's set apart for my purposes, right? Our sexuality is meant to be related to our holiness, our set-apartness. I'll come back to that in a second. He goes on with uh, several more paragraphs, really 22, 13 through 30 is a paragraph, 23, 1 through 9. Um, well, anyway, all the way down to 23, 18. And these all deal with things that seem like, uh, now I know where we're getting to adultery, because they're all relating to sexual purity issues. Some of those are sexual purity issues in marriage. When is a husband and a wife, when are they supposed to divorce over adultery issues? Sometimes it's sexual purity issues regarding uh, prostitutes from other countries. Some of it is marrying other countries. And there's all these rules over who am I allowed to marry? When is divorce okay? When is prostitution okay? Which is basically never, right? When is this okay? And he says, this is the rules that guard, that govern faithfulness in marriage. Instead of reading through those, let me just try to give you a summary of the three big ideas I think we can get from those two chapters. One is that people who follow God should think about and practice sexual activity different from the rest of the world. He said, in this, you see that sexuality is not a public thing, it's not a common thing, and it's not a crude thing. It's an honorable, separate, special thing that God created. And there's a kind of a takeaway, I think, uh, if we were going to apply that, I would say that if, if you think of sex and you practice sex and it looks the same as what you see on TV or you hear in the locker rooms, then you're probably guilty of breaking the seventh commandment, right? The world is not the place where we get our picture of right sexual activity, right? It doesn't provide a, a healthy picture for us. God says, my people need to look different when it comes to how they relate to each other on a marriage level and on a sexual level. There's another big principle he said uh, or in those two chapters, and that is that sex can only happen in the context of marriage. Not only can sex only happen in the context of marriage, that marriage has to be characterized by faithfulness between the husband and the wife, and especially by the husband's care and provision for his wife. Right? In, in the Jewish world in which the Ten Commandments were given, if the wife is left by her husband, she has no income. She has no protection and no provision. And there are stringent laws saying you never leave this woman that you have committed yourself to without protection and provision. And he says that the, the principle seems to be that marriage is the context in which sex happens because that is the context in which we see not simply the gratification of physical desires, but a relationship in which we protect each other, we cherish each other, we love each other, we make sure that the other person is not put down or diminished in any way. This is the context in which sexual activity is okay and right. Uh, there's a third big idea. Well, well let, me, let me back up. 
Let me say, how, based on this, how would we be guilty of breaking the seventh commandment based on this summary? One is, if you are involved in any sexual activity outside of marriage, even if you yourself are not married right now, you are still guilty of breaking the seventh commandment. Right? If you are sexually involved outside of marriage, you're guilty of adultery. Also, if you are married and you are neglecting your spouse, you are not protecting your spouse, providing for your spouse, cherishing them, pr- protecting them, making them feel as if you're, committed, you're fulfilling your commitments to them, then you're guilty of adultery. You are breaking the promise by which your marriage is supposed to be governed. In other words, adultery is more than just an act that happens outside of my marriage with another person. It has to do with governing the way I act inside of my marriage as well. Am I faithful inside of marriage? The third big principle was that the way God's people think about and practice sex is part of their worship, and it's a sign of their commitment to God. We saw this in several ways, uh, especially the, they were, the Jews were, you can't marry anyone from another religion, from outside of your religion, because this is, marriage is something between you and this person, but it's also between God, he, God's involved. There were some laws in this, these two chapters that didn't deal with sex, but they had to deal with, if you're in the army and you go to the bathroom, you need to bury it because the Lord is in your midst and he's a holy God. And the idea is that God is involved in every part of your life. Even the way you use the bathroom reflects your worship of God, saying, I believe God's involved in every aspect of my life. And they said that applies to the way you think about sex as well. Sex, for Christians, is a worship issue. This idea gets really expanded, not in Deuteronomy 22 and 23, but in the rest of the New Te- Old Testament, and especially in the New Testament, especially Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 says, have you ever thought about what marriage is? Because marriage is way more than a commitment between a man and a woman. Because that commitment between a man and a woman is a picture of a much bigger commitment. It's a picture of the commitment God has made to his church. And he says, because of that, every time that you are unfaithful to your spouse, you're communicating that God is unfaithful to his because you're reflecting God in the church. He says, if you are reflecting as a husband, if I love my wife or I treat my wife in a way that's not loving, that is sinful. That's breaking the seventh commandment because it tells the world God doesn't love his spouse. If a wife does not lovingly submit to her husband as to the Lord, that is a violation of the seventh commandment because it says to the world, God does not need to be submitted to by his bride. Right? The way that we interact with our spouses is an aspect of our worship to the God who, which our marriage reflects. Right? And so my whole point here. What I've been trying to show you out of Deuteronomy chapter 22 and chapter 23 is that marriage is not simply, and adultery is not simply an act of infidelity that could happen one time. Adultery has to do with our entire view of sex and marriage, and that any violation of that, any violation of that is a violation of the principles that guide the seventh commandment.
I think that we could say it this way, is that the commandment, the seventh commandment requires for us a heart that is aligned with God's heart in creating marriage in the first place. And I think we can get that from Deuteronomy 23, but we get it explicitly in Matthew chapter 5. And so that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time here tonight is Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 27 through 30. What happens in Matthew 5 is it's just a really interesting thing. And, and we've covered this, I know, on a couple Sunday nights here uh, where we talked about what's, what's Jesus doing. What Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5 is he runs across some people who think, I'm going to get to heaven based on my keeping of the law. I'm going to get to heaven because I haven't broken the Ten Commandments. And so what Jesus does is he walks through the law and he walks through the commandments. And he says, you think you've kept them, but let me interpret the commandments to you so you understand what's really going on. And in Matthew 25, I mean, Matthew 5, 27 through 30, he says, well, let's deal with the seventh commandment. I'll read it to you. Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Because if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one part of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away because it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to go into hell. So the first thing that I want to point out is Jesus is saying, you thought that adultery was just, I can't cheat on my spouse. And he said, you got to realize it's much, much harder and much, much bigger than that. And then he goes in and says, let me tell you what it means. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman uh, to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let me paraphrase that in my own words. He's saying there is a way of looking at a woman that objectifies her. There is a way of looking at a woman that makes her an object to satisfy my sexual urges and curiosities. It devalues her and it belittles the full beauty and purpose for which God created that woman. And that every time a man looks at a woman in a way that belittles her or devalues her or objectifies her or treats her as an object of my lust, that that is a violation of the seventh commandment. I've committed adultery when the way I look at a woman is she's an object, not someone who is created in the image of God to, dis- to display his glory. Jesus makes another point that's really interesting. He says, when I look at a woman lustfully, that is not when I've committed adultery. He says, I look at a woman lustfully, I have already committed adultery in my heart. Did you notice that? Let me read what John MacArthur says. He says, looking at a woman lustfully does not cause a man to commit adultery in his thoughts. He has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It is not the lustful looking that causes sin in the heart, but the sin in the heart that causes lustful looking. He says, the lustful looking is but the expression of a heart that is already immoral and adulterous. The heart is the soil where the seeds of sin are embedded and begin to grow. In other words, he's saying the seventh commandment isn't just trying to regulate your activities. It's not just trying to regulate what you look at. 
The seventh commandment is trying to get at your heart. It's asking you, is your joy in the way God created people? Are you trying to change the way God created people to make them just an object to satisfy your desires and your wants? Are people objects of your lusts? Or are they expressions of the glory of God? So this is the heart question I'm trying to get to. And Jesus' point seems to be, you guys who think you're justified because you've never committed adultery, you're wrong. You've committed it because it's not an act of omission, or it's not an act of commission where I've gone out and broken uh, my trust by committing adultery with another person. The moment that I've devalued another person in my heart, a man devalues a woman in his heart, or vice versa, a woman devalues a man in her heart, they are guilty of devaluing the beauty in which God created in that person. And they are guilty of devaluing marriage itself. You've broken the seventh commandment. If you have looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you, according to Jesus, are an adulterer. I think that if we're honest, that means every single person in this room would say, I'm an adulterer. I am guilty of adultery. Maybe you haven't had an opportunity to express the full wickedness of your heart by actually going out with another person. But you know that inside of your heart, sometimes even the people you value most, sometimes even our wives or our husbands have been treated just as objects for our gratification rather than an opportunity to see the glory of God and his purposes of marriage. We've seen people, sometimes strangers, and thought that their greatest value is what little benefit they can provide to me, as opposed to seeing them as people created in the image of God. We are all adulterers. Here's the problem with that. Our second question, our first question is, what does it mean to commit adultery? It means treating somebody and looking at somebody and thinking about somebody in a way that is other than the way God designed them, glorious representations of his glory. But the problem is, if we realize that everybody in this room is guilty of it, then we're tempted to think, well, then it's not that big of a deal. Right? I've never actually committed adultery in the world's eyes, so maybe I'm not, it's not that big of a deal. So what I want to do next is try to explain three reasons why I do think it's a big deal. It's a really big deal if you've committed adultery according to Christ's standards. One reason is the reason that I heard most growing up, and that is that if you are an adulterer, even especially before you're married, um, there was a group called uh, True Love Waits, I think was their name, and and they had a very... uh, an illustration they used a, a lot, and that was they took a heart, and they, it was a big paper heart, and they would rip off a piece of the heart and give it to every person. And they would say, every time I rip off a piece of this heart, it's like I'm sharing myself with them. I'm being unfaithful before marriage. And their point was, every time that I lust after someone or I'm engaged sexually outside of marriage and the way God designed, it messes me up right? It messes me up. I can't love right. I can't experience love right. I get really messed up when I break God's design. 
I think that they were completely right about that. But I also think that is probably the least of our worries. You think, well, that's a huge worry, though. The fact that I might not ever experience love, the the fact that my lust and that my infidelity might mess me up in my future marriages, that's a big deal. And Jesus is going to say, but that's not your biggest deal. I'll try to explain that in just a second, but let me try to illustrate this again. If I'm talking to somebody about smoking cigarettes, for instance, and I want to tell them cigarettes, is, that's a habit you want to give up. And I start listing, here's some of the reasons. I might start with saying something like, you're going to get yellow teeth, right? Cigarettes yellow your teeth, and if you want white teeth, you'll stop it. That's a significant thing to some people, but it doesn't even compare to the cancer that will destroy your body right? I want to say the same thing is happening with lust. Lust will destroy your happiness on earth. Adultery before marriage will destroy your happiness in marriage. But Jesus says, that's not your biggest problem. Let me explain your biggest problem. I'm going to go and reread Matthew 5, 27 through 30. I'll just actually start in 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Because it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I think what Jesus is saying is the discomfort that you experience on earth is nothing compared to the discomfort that follows in eternity for adulterers. And adulterers are people who look lustfully, a man who looks lustfully on a woman deserves eternity in hell. So the people at True Love Ways, I think they were right that my lustful eyes might mess up my marriage on this earth, but that is small in comparison to those lustful looks can destroy my relationship with God and leave me in hell for eternity. Is being an adulterer a big deal? Jesus says, yes, it's a huge deal because it keeps you out of heaven. It keeps you from knowing God. I think that's the point or one of the major points of all the commandments. One of the major points of all the commandments is to tell us God is very, very holy and you are not. When God asks for no adultery, he means that your heart has to be so pure in the way you look at people of the opposite sex that you reflect the way God looks at them. That's God's standard. And he says, if you fail to meet my standard, then you don't deserve me. That's that's the message of the commandments. And that leaves us with one more big question well, what do I do? If it's true that I've broken the commandment, if it's true that I've looked lustfully at a woman with my eyes or harbored thoughts that weren't fitting for marriage, what am I going to do? If I'm an adulterer, do I have any hope? And that's what makes the rest of the Bible so exciting. In fact, one of the biggest 
um, analogies that God uses over and over with his relationship with his people, Israel, and with the church, as he says, you guys are a bunch of adulterers. I know in Sunday school, we're looking at the minor prophets. One of the minor prophets is Hosea. Hosea was commanded by God to marry uh, Gomer, the prostitute. And he says, the reason I'm making my prophet do this is because I want all of Israel to know that you guys are like a bunch of prostitutes. You're unfaithful. You're adulterers. And I'm going to pursue you anyway. Isn't that crazy? God's saying, yeah, you're guilty of adultery. And I'm going to pursue you anyway. If you tonight encounter the seventh commandment and you think I'm guilty of it, what you should do is throw yourself not on your ability to keep the law, but on the mercy of God who loves you anyway. Say, God, I'm an adulterer. Maybe I've never broken it in the way some other people have broken it, but I've broken it nonetheless. I don't deserve you, but you've pursued me anyway. I think one of the major messages, if not the major message of the New Testament, the Bible, Matthew, which we've been studying, is that God is here to pursue people who don't deserve him. And the way we get to God is to say, I don't deserve you, but I'm thankful that you love me anyway. God is most glorified when his mercy is displayed in our lives. When we say, I need you, Not, God, look what you get with me. But God, I couldn't get anywhere without you. There's another thing we need to do. If we've said tonight, I'm guilty of breaking the seventh commandment. I'm an adulterer. The other thing we need to do is, Romans 12 talks about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We talked a little bit about Ephesians 5 that said the way we know how God loves the church is by modeling that in our marriages. My daughter Dorothy is going to grow up with a picture of God's love for her by watching the way I love Canon. And in some ways, that's terrifying. But in another way, that means it's my responsibility right now to start to pray to God that he will transform my mind to teach me to be a person that rightly loves is no longer marked by adultery so that Dorothy can begin to see a picture of the love of God in the way that I love my wife. That means not only that I can't look at my wife as an object, but I can't look at other people as an object because I'm responsible for modeling the love of God that he's shown me and that he's showing my daughter. So my responsibility tonight is first to repent of my sin, but second to ask God, transform me. Make me a person who loves people, doesn't objectify people or use them as objects to gratify my desires, whether they be sexual desires or any sorts of lusts, but rather I love them as God loves them and sees them as valuable because God created them in his image. The seventh commandment, in summary and in closing, I just want to to repeat, the seventh commandment is a commandment that calls us to examine our hearts. Most of us feel that we, naturally speaking, are innocent of adultery if we've never 
cheated on our spouses in the way that we might see on a soap opera or some late night TV show. And Jesus says, that standard is not my standard. My standard is that you love your wife the way I love my church. Or that you as a wife have loved your husband the way the church is called to love Christ. If you're unmarried, you're called to withstand from sexual activity outside of marriage, both to train your mind for sexual purity and to reflect to the world that sex is a special thing that explains to us who God is and what his character is like. This is a heart issue, not just a small issue regarding how we act in in society. The seventh commandment is a heart issue. The seventh commandment is also a serious issue because what it says is that any of us who have a messed up heart have a messed up relationship with God. And that if we have a messed up relationship with God, we deserve an eternity separated from him. And so the last point was because of that, the seventh commandment teaches us first to beg for God's mercy and second, to beg God to transform us by the renewing of our minds. I'm going to pray and after that, um, I'm trying to decide, usually we, for a time of response, we, do, we have music and, and the like. I think since we don't do that, maybe our time of response will be a little different tonight. One is it's hard for anybody to come up here on a talk of adultery and say, I'm an adulterer. <laughs> right? So I wouldn't expect a full altar anyway, let's be honest. <laughs> but that shouldn't stop us from recognizing we have to do business with God. We have to admit to God, if we have any hope of forgiveness, we have to admit to God, I need forgiveness. You have to confess, I'm an adulterer. So tonight, make it a point. Tell God, I am an adulterer. And confess your sins to one another. Find someone you trust, right? This is a big issue, and so you don't necessarily need to stand up right now and let everybody know, but find someone you trust to say, these are some specific areas in which I need to get right, confess your sins to one another. I'll pray and then I'll have you come and dismiss us. Dear Lord, we are adulterers. And the message of your word is that you love and save adulterers. That doesn't excuse our behavior. It doesn't excuse our lack of fidelity both to our wives and to you. It shows though that we need you And we rely on the fact that you love to be gracious and kind. Train our hearts to reflect your love for others. In your name I pray, amen.